0: I made
1: it. Did I really make it? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you to decide. Did I really make it? Because um I don't have all my graphics ready, but that's okay. That's okay. We're gonna we're gonna wing it. We're gonna wing it. We're gonna ad lib it. We're gonna scooter libby it. And now it looks like the uh like the camera's lopsided, but you know what? I'm gonna have to go ahead and file that under the deal with it category. Lopsided camera day, bitch. Holla at your boy. All right, so in our pre-Thanksgiving day secular talk extravaganza, and when I say extravaganza, I mean regular schmegular show, <laughs> we, um, we're we going to dive into a whole bunch of Oh, motherfucker, I'm wearing a new jacket, and I didn't chop off the fucking tags. <laughs> You've never seen a political show more of a mess than this one so now I have to find a way to get scissors while I'm chatting to you guys on air filling the room with noise so I could get rid of this fucking
0: stupid ass tag okay here we go alright
1: maybe I'll maybe I'll throw this up on YouTube maybe I will throw this up on YouTube so that everybody could laugh and get enjoyment out of how much of a fucking mess I am. Okay, let's see. I think I will do that. I think I will put this up on YouTube so everybody can see how much of a mess I am. All right, so the tag, this is a a jacket from Express, by the way. Very nice company. Um, It has my size on it. For those of you who are wondering... My jacket size is a 42 regular slim fit. It's questionable whether or not I should actually be wearing slim fit. Um, But I'm borderline, and so I go with the slim. So let me cut these off here. Okay, I dropped the tag. Now that's staying there for years because I'm not going to move it.
0: I think these little thingies. These little thingies going to come out or no? I don't know. Okay, whatever, that's good enough. <laughs> there you go.
1: I am a mess, in case anybody was wondering. Trying to take the tags off of my jacket while I'm live on the air. This is how we roll, baby. We roll like the fucking idiot I am. Okay, now where was I? Oh, I was going to run you, I was going to give you a little rundown of what, what we're going to talk about today. Um, Trump surprised us all the other night. He kind of conceded. It was a little bit of a concession, not much of a concession, but a little bit of a concession. Um, we have Fox News hosts are beginning to admit the obvious, and their, their audiences are really, really, really not happy. In fact, they're, they're furious. So we'll talk about that as well. We'll talk about um, Lou Dobbs and Trump bragged about the economy as it was imploding. Is the Republican Party in the midst of an identity crisis? That's something that we'll talk about. Um, We have social media companies continuing to crack down on freedom of speech. Charles Koch breaks his silence and tells everybody exactly what he's been doing for the past few decades. Um, And interestingly, we have the Libertarian Party responded to yours truly. Isn't that special? I think that's special. Anyway, all right, here we go. Without further ado, let's get started. And um, we'll do that with Trump surprising everybody. President Trump surprised all of us the other night. He came as close to a concession as he's ever going to come. You cannot expect more than this from Donald Trump. This is, in essence, a concession even though afterwards he tried to walk it back and cover it up and act like he didn't say what he said. This is a concession. He says this, I want to thank Emily Murphy at GSA for her steadfast dedication and loyalty to our country. She has been harassed, threatened, and abused. And I do not want to see this happen to her, her family, or employees of GSA. Our case strongly continues. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Nonetheless, In the best interest of our country, I am recommending that Emily and her team do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols and have told my team to do the same. So what that means is he's green-lighting the use of about $6 million in funds that's allocated for the transition process. So there's uh, millions of dollars in funds, that are now used to start the transition and have a smooth transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Because remember, there's a lot of positions in the government that are now gonna change hands. And so you need to have some sort of process in place where you have you know, new training, for example, for various job positions. And so you need funds to do that. And up until this point, Trump was not allowing those funds to be released. Now this is him saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and let the funds be released. Now after this, he did typical, you know, Trump stuff where he was like, no, I didn't say that I lost. No, I didn't say that I conceded. I just said it's in the best interest of the country to go ahead and maybe start a little bit of the procedure or something like that. But it's not what, you're, it's not what you say it is. I think we, we're still going to win. I think that we still have plenty of fight left in us. Now, of course, if you've been following this stuff, not even closely, If you've been even half paying attention to this stuff, you know the reality that there's been over 30 election cases and the Trump people have lost either all of them or maybe they won one, but it was totally inconsequential. So they either lost all of them or won one out of over 30, but it's totally inconsequential. So there is no fight left in them. They're done. In fact, you have a lot of high profile Republican players now behind the scenes are basically telling Trump and Rudy Giuliani, wrap it up, skis. This is getting embarrassing. This is getting embarrassing. Everything that you're doing whenever you're on TV and you're making these arguments and you know you're not going to win and you just look stupid. You look stupid. You're going to have to chill. Um, So he's done. And this is as close to an admission as you're going to get that he's done. By the way, I asked a poll question of you guys the other day on Twitter, and I said, uh, is Donald Trump going to go to the inauguration? The results are amazing. Eighty-eight percent of you are like, no. <laughs> no way is he going to the inauguration. Eighty-eight percent are like, of course not. Yeah, I tend to lean in that direction as well. Although I will say, if he were to go, I wouldn't be totally surprised. Um, I feel like at the last minute he might get told that, like, he'd be the only president to not go to the inauguration ever, and... That it's a total beta cuck move, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, that, that, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've always planned on going. I don't even know what you mean. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he went, but, yes, my default assumption is the same as 88% of you guys, which is, no, he's not going to go to the inauguration. He's a giant baby. Um, so, but this is it, man. Even though after this he went on to, uh, to say, no, I didn't say I lost. I didn't concede. I don't know what you're talking about. No concession ever. Like, he really went hard on the—I didn't say the thing that, you, that I said, but this is—as re- long as the, the wheels of the process are in motion, that's all we need, game, set, match. Because I, I don't really care how Trump feels about what's about to happen, as long as it happens, as long as we have the transition of power. So he's never going to admit that he actually lost. I mean, that's obvious. He's going to be saying, you know, it's a fraudulent election, rigged election from now until the end of time, even though there's absolutely no evidence— Um, you know, to to prove that. But the saddest thing, guys, and this one actually hurts. This one actually hurts as I was reading through some of the responses. Man, there are some people who are so deep in that, like, QAnon world and so deep in the hardcore pro-Trump world that they're actually saying publicly, this is just Trump doing 4D chess, bro. Obviously, he's going to win. They're going to release the Kraken. That's the thing that they keep going back to. Sidney Powell is going to release the crack, and Sidney Powell's a total crank who's, you know, presented no solid evidence for the idea that the election was rigged, and yet she's up front making this case, and her case is so weak that even the Trump legal team and Trump himself had to let her go. But you still have, like, the QAnon people and the hardcore Trump people who are like, Sidney Powell is going to come out with all this evidence and totally, like, correct the record and stuff, and Trump's going to be inaugurated, so trust the plan, guys. I don't know what you're talking about. Donald Trump is playing 4D chess and i actually just feel bad for those people i feel bad for those people cuz those people were taken advantage of you know like there's some percentage of the population that's just kind of dim and they're just they're just a mark they're ripe to be abused and this is an instance where you know the world's uh, most successful con man donald trump and now they're about to get a Slap in the face of reality. Now I'm sure they'll rationalize it from now until forever that oh my God, it's the corrupt deep state and the election was stolen and it was rigged. So, but they actually, at least as of right now, they actually believe it's Donald Trump who will get four more years. Oh man, I just feel bad for those people. I do. But anyway, um, this was—I'm not going to lie, you guys. This was a little bit of a sigh of relief because. At least up until this point, publicly, Trump has not given any indication, any indication that he's going to be cool with, yes, the transition of power, you know. Um, This is the first inkling of like, okay, all right, what am I going to do, you know. Now, I I was never fully on board with the argument of like, you know, the hardcore resistance people who are like, it's a coup, oh my God, it's a coup. But I thought it was disturbing enough that the president of the United States of America was not acknowledging the obvious reality of what happened in the election. Like, that's bad in and of itself without going to the extent that you think Donald Trump's gonna have the military on his side and they're literally gonna do a coup and they'll hold fucking Biden at gunpoint and lock him up in a cage or something come January 20th. Like, I I don't think you had to go that far for it to be disturbing. It was already disturbing as is, which is that this guy just refuses to acknowledge reality. But now we have the first inkling of, even though he's gonna continue to deny reality, there's a little wink and a nod of like, I got it, you know? So anyway, there we have it. Um, That's as close to a concession as we're gonna get. So soak it in. Okay. Now I have to go to Laura Ingram, but I do not have a Laura Ingram thingy. So let me pull one up real quick. Laura Ingram graphic. There we go. That was record speed for pulling up a graphic, if I don't say so myself. All right. What's interesting now is that the Fox people can only go so far in service of their partisan hackery. And that's really far. Don't get it twisted. Like, they'll go to lengths that you and I will roll our eyes and be like, Jesus Christ, that's insane. But there's some things they just can't do. So, for example, on election night, actually a few days after the election, when it was just, it's clear, Biden wins. They can't lie that much to their audience and pretend like, no, Biden actually didn't win. Because what they have is, they have what they call the brain room, I know, hilarious, at Fox News. And they have data experts and analysts and people whose job it is to determine reality. And so those people were like, yeah, we know which states have already been called. Most of them were called on election night, obviously. And then within the subsequent few days, we got the answer in more and more states. At some point, it was clear, okay, the mail-ins are breaking 80% to Biden. There's X number of mail-in votes left. It's over. Biden wins the election. See, And and we told you about this, the red mirage scenario. The red mirage scenario is that in most of the states, the votes are counted from election day first. Those were always going to break more pro-Trump because Republicans like to vote more on election day. Well, now we have a pandemic and there's a lot more mail-in votes and the mail-in votes break overwhelmingly Democratic and those got counted second. And so Trump had to hold on to the leads that he built on election night and it just wasn't anywhere near enough. And so we knew Biden, we knew that Biden was going to make up the gap in all of the states where the mail-in votes are counted second. And just so everybody understands, take like Michigan, for example, and Wisconsin. Trump was up there on election night, but those states were like plus eight or plus 10 Biden in the polls. They weren't even like swing states. They were basically like safe Biden states come the election. And so people thinking Trump was going to hang on there, it's just, it's just delusional. But anyway, Trump uh, or, or Fox News is not willing to go far enough where they just flat out lie about what's happening in the election. And so when all the other networks called the election, Fox not only called the election, they went one step further and also called Nevada before any of the other networks called Nevada. And in fact, it was Fox News who called Arizona first as the other networks. And even Nate Silver were like, I haven't seen enough yet to call Arizona. Fox News was like, we have seen enough to call Arizona. We're very confident in calling it for Joe Biden. So because of the experts and because of the veneer of respectability, they weren't willing to go as far as other unscrupulous far-right outlets were willing to go. And honestly, that's to their credit. Yes, they have their opinion hosts, They have the Sean Hannity's. They have the Tucker Carlson's. They have the Laura Ingrams. But the reality was going to smack him in the face at a certain point. Okay, so you get that. Well, now, the opinion people have held out as long as they possibly could. And Laura Ingram and the other opinion hosts are seeing what you and I are seeing. They're seeing that there's over 30 election lawsuits, and the Trump people lost either all of them or all but one of them, which was inconsequential. You bring over 30 election lawsuits and you lose over 30 election lawsuits, what do you want me to tell you? you're done You're not going anywhere. This is embarrassing. This is pathetic. You have to actually prove your case in a court of law. You can't just lie about it and you can't just make brazen claims. No, now you're in a court of law. You have to prove it. And what happens? Doggy ate my proof. Something, right? Ridiculous, ridiculous. So now the opinion hosts have held out as long as possible. Here's Laura Ingram acknowledging the reality.
2: In what was perhaps the most consequential tweet sent since Election Day, President Trump gave the go-ahead for the transition. You see it there. And as unpleasant and disappointing as these past three weeks have been to so many of us, as much as we wish things were different, this is where things stand tonight. Now, legal challenges continue in a number of states. Serious questions about vote counting, poll watcher access are outstanding. But unless the legal situation changes in a dramatic and, frankly, an unlikely manner, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, to say this does not mean I don't think that this election was rife with problems and potential fraud. And to say this does not constitute being a sellout to the conservative populist movement that I've been fighting for for, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, And it does not mean that I disagree at all with the President's right and obligation to pursue all legitimate legal challenges to this outcome. To say this constitutes living in reality. And if I offered you a false reality, if I told you that there was an excellent, phenomenal chance that the Supreme Court was going to step in and deliver a victory to President Trump, I'd be lying to you.
1: So... Here's the interesting part of this story. Now, the Republican base is turning on Fox News. Let me repeat that. The Republican base is turning on Fox News. We all thought they were one and the same. Turns out they're not. Because they created a monster, and now the monster is out of control. So let me just read you some of the comments from underneath that video. It had way more dislikes than you would expect from a Fox News video. Usually people who go there know what they're looking for, know what they're gonna get, and so the you know, it's ninety-eight percent likes or whatever. This one's nowhere close to that. It had like maybe twenty five to thirty percent dislikes at the time I saw it, something along those lines. Um, here's some of the comments. First Tucker, now Laura like we don't know who pays their salaries. Just because I'm a sellout doesn't mean I'm a sellout. Laura Ingram, somebody quoted that. She didn't say that, but they're saying she's a sellout, obviously. Um, Wrong message to deliver, Laura. You gave up. We're not selling out. Something a sellout tells you. So the claim is they're sellouts for saying... Look, Biden's going to win. Biden's going to be inaugurated. I hope President Trump exhausts every avenue possible to try to win himself, but Biden's going to win. For saying that, they're viewed as beyond the pale, a turncoat, a sellout. So for simply acknowledging objective reality, this is what happens and I guess it's something I've been talking about a lot recently on this show, which is, isn't it fascinating that when you talk about creating a network to the left of MSNBC, people understand what that means. They want somebody, they want a network that's more policy-focused, more issues-driven, and will also hold Democrats accountable and not just do the Republican badge shtick. That's what a network to the left of MSNBC means. A network to the right of Fox News does not mean I want you to be more principally conservative. I need you to be be more principled, more focused on the issues, more doctrinaire in conservative ideology. No. A network to the right of Fox News means I want you to be more of a sycophantic authoritarian who just tells me what I want to hear. Because in, in the far-right mindset and conception of the world, Donald Trump is the ultimate political daddy. And whatever he says goes. And so he's still out there, even though he's semi-conceited. Now he's still out there saying, no, 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 we're still going to fight. I'll never stop fighting. And we still think we're going to win. We're still going to have more lawsuits. And so one of the, uh, the other things you saw under this video is a lot of conservatives were saying that. Why is Laura saying this when Trump says he's going to continue fighting? Is, why is she selling out? Why is she such a turncoat? So they want more authoritarianism to create a network to the right of Fox. More built-in delusion. More telling me what I want to hear, even if we know it's not accurate. How sad is that? They created the monster, and now they don't know how to deal with it. There's an old saying, chickens coming home to roost. That's what this looks like. So, I mean, she's right on the substance here, but that's... It's like she's she's a, a parent who's not a good parent trying to reason with the psychotic child who's on the brink of a tantrum. Given all the caveats and the hedges and walking on eggshells, and still, they turn on her. Look at what you guys created. Look at what you did. It really, really, really is sad, isn't it? But hey, you built that. You all built that. Tucker, Laura, Sean Hannity, you all built it. Now you're going to have to live with the consequences. And the consequences are that they're going to flee you and go to Newsmax or go to One American News Network. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. So I'll sit back and enjoy watching this. I'm not going to lie to you guys. This is is a, a Republican civil war I can believe in. They're going to be at each other's throats quite a bit. Because usually, listen, when you're on the losing side, that's when you have to do the reevaluation and the introspection. You know, and Trump lost. The Republicans did better than expected, but Trump lost. And so now you're going to have competing visions within the Republican Party as to what the path forward is. And um, there's a rabid, frothing-at-the-mouth base that has one gear, and that year is Defend Daddy Trump. And so tread carefully, because there's almost no getting out of this one. There's no amount of caveats or hedges or nuance that's going to, you know, sort of calmly de-escalate the situation with these people. You created a monster, and now the monster's eating you. Guess you shouldn't have created the monster. Okay. Okay. Now, we're going to go to um, Fox News' Lou Dobbs and Donald Trump. They uh, bragged about the economy as it is falling apart. Let me set this up for you. Fox's Lou Dobbs did a segment bragging about the economy and the stock market. There's a little clip of Trump in here who called an impromptu press conference to do exactly the same thing and this is all happening as the economy falls apart
3: take a look good evening everybody history made on wall street today a huge rally the dow jones industrials climbing over the thirty thousand point milestone for the first time in history the dow jones industrials closing at thirty thousand forty five points up four hundred and fifty five points on the day the S&P up 58, the NASDAQ gaining 156. In less than four years, President Trump unleashed the market. Since his inauguration, the Dow Jones Industrials gaining more than 10,000 points and the market cap up more than $18 trillion since he was elected four years ago. President Trump's stewardship of the economy and these markets Coming despite a never-ending assault from the radical left, a deep state, resistance from the rhinos of his own party, a politically corrupt judiciary, not to mention a global pandemic unleashed by China on an unsuspecting world. 2020 has been an unforgettable year. At an impromptu press briefing today, the President hailed his administration's efforts and congratulated the American people for their part in this historic achievement on the market. I just
4: want to congratulate everybody. The stock market Dow Jones Industrial Average just hit 30,000, which is the highest in history. We've never broken 30,000, and that's just despite... Uh, everything that's taken place with the pandemic, I'm very uh, thrilled with what's happened on the vaccine front. That's been absolutely incredible. It's, uh, nothing like that has ever happened medically, and uh, I think people are acknowledging that, and it's having a big effect. But as the stock market's just broken 30,000, never been broken, that number. That's a sacred number 30,000. Nobody thought they'd ever see it.
0: You could see cars lined up everywhere at Fair Park. When you take a wider view from the air, the length of the line was as far as the eye could see, backed up onto the freeway. But for those in the line, they saw something else.
5: I see blessings coming to us because we're all struggling, and, and I appreciate North Texas helping us out. There we go. There we go. Oh. Boom, boom, boom. Oh.
0: Samantha Woods was one of the estimated 25,000 people who benefited from the giveaway.
5: It really is amazing. And I thank God that I was able to get in the line this morning.
0: Each of them thankful, grateful, and very candid about how tough this past year has been.
5: I haven't been working since December, March, May. can't find a job. They cut, cut off my
4: unemployment.
0: It, it's a big deal. It's a real big deal. Well, so this is a big blessing.
1: As food bank lines go as far as the eye can see, they're bragging about the stock market. Just so you know, the richest 1% own half the stocks. And if I remember correctly, it's like 80 or 90% of the stocks are owned by the top 10%. So this isn't a reflection of how your average person is doing. It's a reflection of how the wealthy are doing, and it's a reflection of how the corporations are doing. And no wonder they're doing well. They have corporate socialism as far as the eye could see. Under the CARES Act, they got $5 trillion. Just a giant welfare check to all of corporate America. It is corporate socialism. So they get bailed out no matter what. The people, on the other hand, do not. And that's exactly what you're seeing there, which is why people need to wait on these long food bank lines. You could have bailed out the people. You could have done universal basic income. You could have paid 75 or 80% of the American people's wages as you shut down to protect people from COVID. They didn't do any of that. They didn't shut down. They didn't nationalize wages. They didn't do universal basic income. They did a one-time $1,200 stimulus check. One-time $1,200 stimulus check. One time. I knew that Trump would do this, but it's kind of amazing the extent to which he's willing to ignore or downplay the negative facts about the economy to try to play up the things that he views as good, like the market, you know? I mean, three men, three billionaires own as much as the bottom half of Americans. When you look at the numbers... The number of small businesses that are going to go out of business, all the while, billionaires are getting phenomenally more wealthy during this crisis. You have this corporate consolidation, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Gilded Age, or I should say the consolidation at the top, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. But small businesses, what was the number? It was like 40% of restaurants could close within a year or so, 40%. 30% of the American people might not be able to pay their rent or their mortgage. As soon as these protections go away after the pandemic, people are screwed. They're absolutely screwed. And numbnuts over here and Lou Dobbs, his sycophant, are out there bragging about the stock market, the nerve of these people. Also, the nerve of these people to talk about something like that as you have over 250,000 Americans dead of COVID. And that number is going to spike massively, man. We're in an uncontrolled spread in every single state in the country, except Hawaii. They're the only ones who are not in an uncontrolled spread right now. So, man, I shudder at the thought of how many people are going to die from COVID before this is all over. Even though we got good news on the vaccine front, it's got to be distributed. It's got to be distributed. So, I don't know, are we looking at 500,000, a million Americans dead from a pandemic? And they want to say... The stonks are up, so let's, be all, let's all be excited. Let me take a victory lap. The worst possible measure you could ever use. That's what that is, and he's proudly doing it. It's really pathetic, man. It's really pathetic. No socialism for the, for the average guy and the average girl, but socialism for the wealthy and socialism for corporations, and they go out there and brag about the stock market doing well. It's pathetic.
0: Okay, next.
1: Let's talk about the Republican Party's identity crisis. This is interesting. Will the Republican Party have an identity crisis post-Trump? Now, I'm going to show you a clip. This is CNN commentator Se Cup talking to Rick Santorum, but I don't think you see any of Rick here. Um, she has a, a, a take on this, and then I want to come back and dissect it and tell you guys where I think she's wrong and what I think will happen with the Republican Party moving forward.
5: twofold. One, I think Republicans have been scared that Trump is going to run a bunch of, you know, scam packs to try and primary Republicans who weren't sufficiently Trumpy to line his own pockets and sue his own ego, but still with with a base behind him and, and some influence. And and secondly, I just think Republicans have been so emasculated by this president that they they've lost their identity. And so, They've, they've almost become like, like teenagers, about to go off to college. For, for 18 years, their parents have told them what to say and think, and all of a sudden they're about to go and have to make their own decisions. Republicans are sort of waking up to that reality that, well, Trump, Trump is gonna be gone, and they're gonna to have to sort of rediscover who they are, what they think, what they believe in again, without someone like Trump just telling them constantly, who they are, and where to go. The 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 election was stolen is not the identity, the principal philosophy, the underlying identity of the Republican Party. No, I mean, it can't be. If that's what you're saying the Republican Party is now, well, then the Republican Party, I don't think it, I should. it had an identity before Trump. That identity included being against raising the debt and deficit, against tariffs and protectionism, uh, pro-family. There were a lot of things that Republicans I know, like me, uh, believed in that were completely morphed into whatever Trump said they should be once he got into
1: Real distinction between the Republican Party being the party of Trump and the Republican Party being the classic GOP, let's call it. And there is no substantive difference. See, she brings up policy there and acts like, well, that changed under Trump. No, but it actually didn't at all. It didn't change at all. The only difference, the only change in the Republican Party in the Trump era is cultural. So previously there would be, you know, coded arguments used to make people who are maybe slightly xenophobic or bigoted feel not so bad about it. But Trump came along and he sort of dropped the coded language, and he was a little more upfront about it. Like you would have, you know, previously you'd have somebody like Mitt Romney talk about the problem of uh, undocumented immigration or illegal immigration or something like that. And Trump comes along and in his launch speech he says... You know, the Mexicans, they're coming here, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. So it's just sort of like a more blunt attack. Whereas previously, you know, Mitt Romney talking about Obama. Oh, his ideas are questionable in terms of the direction that he wants to take the country. And then along comes Trump. I don't think he was born here. So it just drops the the veneer of respectability um, and goes right to... Almost dives headfirst into the culture war and is willing to rep that right-wing side of the culture war and has zero filter. So, yes, the, the Trump GOP is more brash, more arrogant, has no filter, is more bombastic, is more belligerent. But that's it. That's where it ends. Because in terms of the policies he's pursued, it's exactly the things that she listed there. Well, I guess with one exception. She brings up balanced budgets. But here's the problem with that argument. She says, previously, before Trump, the Republican Party believed in balanced budgets. And now after, apparently they don't because he's increasing the debt and the deficit. SE, um, the, the Republican Party before Trump also increased the debt and the deficit. They did it nonstop. George W. Bush exploded the debt and the deficit. Ronald Reagan exploded the debt and the deficit. Trump is just continuing in that tradition. So the Republican Party always used the rhetoric of caring about debt and deficits, and then governed in a way where the debt and the deficit went up, and that's not necessarily a bad thing by the way, um, and in the case of Trump, he's just following in what the rest of them did so again, like he's just he's just the no filter version of Mitt Romney he's Mitt Romney if Mitt Romney was also a giant asshole and tweeted a lot that's it. that's all it is, but she's trying to make this ridiculous argument that no, the Republican Party before Trump was actually very respectable and principled and believed in these things. And now after Trump, oh, he kind of hijacked the party and took it over and now brought about his own ideology. No, his ideology is the same as the Republican ideology. It is. The only parts that are true is when she says, oh, a lot of these Republican politicians are scared of Trump. They are, because they fear that if he turns on them, one tweet can destroy their career. So in a weird way, he does sort of keep the Republican politicians in line. And, you know, in a way that's the exact opposite of the Democrats, like Pelosi and Schumer, they let the Democrats do whatever the hell they want to do. If they're from a, a more moderate district, they let them vote with Republicans. If they're from a left wing district, they let them vote on the left. But there's no coordination and leadership and no, like, getting people in line. Trump, all he has to do, just because he's, he's a mean tweeter, that alone gets them to fall in line, which is why, even after Trump clearly lost an election, a lot of the Republicans. Didn't say anything. There were only a handful of defectors who were like, yeah, you lost. Most of them didn't say anything, and some of them were even like, oh, yeah, I don't know, fraud, abuse, something, rigged election. He needs to exhaust all avenues and go to court. So they do live in fear of him in that sense, and he did sort of emasculate them um, and make them kiss his ring. But outside of the culture war angle where Trump is just you know, a Republican on steroids and outside of the no filter – He's just like the rest of them. He's just like the rest of them. And so the problem with what SC Cup is saying is this. She's leaving wiggle room for the rehabilitation, for the rehabilitation of the Republican brand immediately post-Trump. And this is what the Lincoln Project does too, for example. They attack Trump nonstop, attack him relentlessly, position themselves as these anti-Trump heroes, But then they redirect all the money that they get and all the support they give into so-called moderate Republicans, which, again, are the people who agree with Trump on all the policies and just don't like that he's an asshole. So the media has done a terrible job of this. The Democrats have done a terrible job of this, not understanding that the real point you should have been making all along is that, no, it is the party of Trump. All of you are exactly like Trump. So what? There's some stylistic differences and some culture differences. But outside of that, you agree totally on policy, and policy is what matters in politics. And so now you have people like Essie Cup and, you know, she's going to help rehabilitate the image of the GOP. And it's pathetic, and it's annoying, and um, it's something that we're going to have to get used to because there's going to be a lot of this happening moving forward. Okay. All right, let me do one more here. Then we'll take a break. I got Fareed Zakaria. This one is on Obama. So let me pull up an Obama graphic for you, which I actually have.
0: Give me my Obama graphic, bitch.
1: My Obama graphic, bitch. Of course, it's the last one. Oh, did I not fucking pull it up? What the fuck? Oh, no, it is. Okay, here we go. Fareed Zakaria spoke about Obama's new book. It's his 47th autobiography. And um, in some of the segment, you're not going to see this part here, but in some of the segment he says, oh, he's a great writer, and, you know, he makes a lot of good points. And then he gets to some criticisms. Now, this is really interesting because he's so close to nailing it exactly right, but then he just misses at the end. So let's see his criticism of Obama, and then we'll discuss.
3: He
6: devotes little time in the book to the central political dynamic in his years in office, the rise of an enraged, utterly obstructionist, manichaean opposition to his presidency and to himself personally, that ultimately culminated in the election of Donald Trump. A reminder, Barack Obama was a moderate Democrat, conservative in temperament, he acknowledges, and governed as one. For his key economic advisors, he chose Tim Geithner and Larry Summers, widely seen as two of the most centrist, market-friendly experts of the party. He kept on Bush's defense secretary and offered Republican Senator Judd Gregg another key cabinet post. Secretary of Commerce. He sent in thousands more troops to Afghanistan and expanded drone warfare. And his health care plan was modeled on the conservative Heritage Foundation's old proposal, one that also served as the basis for Mitt Romney's program when he was governor of Massachusetts. This reign of moderation and compromise, however, elicited a reaction from the Republican Party that was furious and vengeful. Obama notes that Gregg, who initially accepted the job as Commerce Secretary, had to back down in the face of activist outrage that he was serving the enemy. Obama recounts the case of Charlie Chris, who, as governor of Florida, supported Obama's stimulus, which the state desperately needed since its economy was in free fall. His two second handshake and hug with Obama made Chris so toxic within the Republican Party that by 2010 he had to become an independent and later a Democrat. Despite many compromises, Obama got not one Republican vote for his stimulus or health care bills in the House of Representatives, and opposition to his policy was often couched in blatantly racist ways, such as posters denouncing Obamacare with caricatures of him as an African witch doctor with a bone stuck through his nose. The man who succeeded him in the office, Donald Trump, rose to political prominence by casting doubt on whether Obama was born in the United States. Obama talks about these hysterical reactions to him intelligently but briefly, never offering deep analysis or passionate anger. He admits he wasn't focused on the ominous undercurrents that were growing in strength. He writes, my team and I were too busy. But it might also be that it would take him into deep and dark waters that are so different from the hopeful, optimistic country he so plainly wants to believe in. America, for him, remains a promised land.
1: So here's why that's interesting. He's laying out, correctly, how Obama was basically a, a moderate Democrat. In fact, in Obama's own words, he gave an interview, I tweeted this you know, a few weeks ago, he gave an interview when he was in office, and he's like, my policies are actually that of a moderate Republican from the 1980s. So this is how he views himself. This is how he governed. This is what Fried Zakaria is accurately pointed out, is accurately pointing out. But then at the end, what does he imply? He implies, wow, even with this moderate leadership, there was still a giant backlash in this country. And Obama doesn't really dive into, in his book, the rise of Trump and how that came about. And Fried Zakaria's conclusion is like, you know, Obama is an optimist about America, but maybe it doesn't even make that much sense to be an optimist about America. Maybe it's a lot uglier than, you know, he's letting on. So his argument is like, even if even with moderate leadership from Obama, you got this hardcore cultural backlash. The implication here is like, well what are you going to do? There's a large chunk of the country that's just so totally unreasonable that the backlash was inevitable. And maybe that's going to happen. You know, That's the, the reaction after you have the first black president elected, you get this like cultural backlash, which led to the ugly rise of Trumpism. So that, that's the argument that he's getting at there. Now, here's why that just misses the mark. It misses the mark because it doesn't account for the possibility that maybe Obama's moderation in terms of his policies, maybe that was part of the problem. See, he, he portrays it as like, like if anything, that shouldn't lead to a backlash. That should lead to more support from the right, from, from Republican voters. And no, my argument would be, and I think there's evidence for this, as opposed to there's none for what Farid is saying. Actually, if Obama went in there with his mandate after Bush and governed like FDR, really brought about change, say, broke up the big banks, for example, kept people in their homes, um, in, in the economic crisis gave people universal basic income, did Medicare for all. In a situation where Barack Obama goes in there and he's a social Democrat, and he really changes stuff, really gets the corruption out of the system. I think that would have led to, there wouldn't have been nearly as big of a backlash. The moderate, pro, uh, the moderate policies, corporatist policies, were part of the problem. It's hard to smear somebody who's very obviously working on your behalf and making your life better materially. And so my evidence for this, historically, is FDR. FDR... Uh, won all but two states. He won, he won four times, by the way. He won four times. And some of those elections were just insanely crushing to the point where the Republicans were like, wow, we'll never beat this party. We need to do term limits because that's one of the only ways maybe that we'll, you know, be able to win again. So when America got a little taste of social democracy, even people who would self-describe as conservative were like, damn. This government is looking out for me. This government is giving people jobs and higher wages and building infrastructure and fixing the country and bringing us, well, good-paying union jobs, whatever it might be. This is good. I'm in favor of the country doing well, so now I'm going to support this person. So, in other words, what Fareed Zakari doesn't understand is, no, it's not like written into the laws of nature that if we had our first black president that it was going to be guaranteed to be, as I think Van Jones called it, a white lash They're going to have this giant right-wing backlash, and then the rise of something like Trumpism. If we had Obama act like FDR and really improve people's lives, there still would have been a backlash, but it would have been not nearly as much, because it's harder to get people out there in the streets when you're materially improving their lives. What percentage of the population would have, you know, would there have been a backlash among 25%, maybe 30%, as opposed to like the 40, 45% that we have? So it wouldn't have been as as big of a movement. It wouldn't have been as prominent a story. And uh, so anyway, my point is oftentimes with these commentators and mainstream media, they overlook the economic angle and they don't think that, hey, maybe the so-called moderation or corporatism was part of the problem. Free view is like, hey, even with him being moderate, there was a backlash and So what he's saying is, imagine if he actually acted in a far-left way, well, then the backlash would have been even bigger. No, if he acted in a so-called far-left way, it would have helped people, and fewer people would have been angry. So anyway, that's my view of it. Listen, part of, here's my final point, part of the backlash to Obama, yes, it was cultural, absolutely, absolutely. There are plenty of people living in certain regions who are bigoted. They're bigoted, and they, could, they weren't comfortable with the fact that a black guy was leading. Yes, of course that's real. The question is, what percentage is that? What percentage is sort of like, to steal Hillary's phrase, like an irredeemable deplorable? My contention is it's a lot less than these elitist Democrats think. It's a lot fewer than they think. So the cultural backlash to Obama, you were never going to change anything about that. that. I mean, that was always going to be what it is. But in terms of the economic backlash, where the movement was bigger than it should have been, yeah, that you could have prevented, that you could have avoided, and you could have avoided it if you actually help people. If you materially help people, bring jobs, bring bring nice factory jobs, high wages, fix the country in, in substantive ways, yeah, then it's a lot harder to get people out there in the streets and to oppose you, and the backlash wouldn't have been nearly that much. And honestly, whichever Democrat followed Obama would have probably won if... He went in a social democratic direction, and then the next administration was clear, we're going to go in a social democratic direction. It's the neoliberal corporatism, the moderation, as Fried Zakaria calls it, which was part of the problem, whereas he views it as like, no, what do you mean Obama was being so reasonable, being a moderate, being like a Republican, basically, and there was still a backlash. Yeah, I think it just, it, it, that's not, there's not enough materialism in that analysis. You know, it's a very... Ideological cultural analysis, and I don't think it's spot on. So, yeah, he did the Heritage Foundation healthcare plan. He did Mitt Romney's healthcare plan. He bailed out Wall Street. Um, there was a quote from Obama that came out recently where he said he didn't break up the banks because he didn't want to do quote violence to the social order. That's a fundamentally conservative idea. Fundamentally conservative. Yeah, maybe this was part of the problem, and maybe this led to the bigger backlash. That's what I think Freed Zakaria misses. That's what I think most people on the Democratic side in general miss, is they think, like, no, like, the entire backlash was just because people are irredeemable, deplorable bigots and they're bad people who we need to defeat. Actually, no. Like, half of them are people who were persuadable and you could have got on your side if you materially helped them. The other half, yes, might be, you know, might be hopeless. But there's a lot more people that it's not hopeless than these people like to admit. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I got Joe Biden's cabinet picks, y'all. You do not want to miss this. I'll talk about Tony Blinken. Alright, I'm back, y'all. I am back. Looking for reviews on my purple jacket. Looking for reviews on my purple jacket. Curious what everybody thinks. I'm a fan. I'm a fan because it's subtle. It's very uh, like it almost looks like it's black or something. Just like a little hint of purple in it, you know. It's um, it's a good one. It's a good one. Or am I just trying to talk myself into into liking it at the moment? Is that what's happening? Am I trying to talk myself into liking my purple jacket when I actually secretly don't? All right, we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about Joe Biden's cabinet. There are some questionable characters in his cabinet, to say the least. I actually have a video on this for you as well. This guy's Twitter name is awesome because it looks like, if you read it, it says Abe Lincoln. But it's A... Like the letter A, and then B L I N, Blin K E N, Blinken. Blinken. Kind of clever. Anyway, here we go. Biden made some picks for his administration. Um, for Secretary of State, he picked a guy by the name of Tony Blinken. This guy has a track record, well known in Democratic politics. Here's what you need to know about him. And uh, credit here to journalist dan cohen and his outlet behind the headlines take a look
0: as for ending the forever wars tony blinken says not so fast. large scale open-ended deployment uh, of large standing u.s forces in conflict zones with no clear strategy uh, should end and will end under his watch But we also need to distinguish between, for example, uh, these endless wars with the large-scale open-ended deployment uh, of uh, U.S. forces with, for example, uh, discrete, small-scale, sustainable operations, uh, maybe led by special forces, to support local actors. In in ending uh, the endless wars, we also have to be careful not to paint with too broad uh, a a brushstroke. Biden will end the forever wars, but not really end them secret wars that the public doesn't know the U.S. is involved in, those are here to stay. He became Obama's point man on Syria, pushing to arm the so-called moderate rebels that fought alongside al-Qaeda and ISIS and designed the Red Line strategy to trigger a full-on U.S. intervention. Syria, he told the public, wasn't anything like the other wars the U.S. had been waging for more than a decade. We are doing this in a very different way than in the past. We're not sending in hundreds of thousands of American troops. We're not spending trillions of American dollars. We're being smart about this. This is a sustainable way to get at the the, uh, terrorists, and it's also a more effective way. This is not open-ended. This is not boots on the ground. This is not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. It's not even Libya. And the more people understand that, the more they'll understand the need for us to take this limited but effective action. Despite Blinken's promises that it would be a short affair, the war on Syria is now in its ninth year. An estimated half a million people have been killed as a result, and the country is facing a famine, largely thanks to the policy of using wheat to apply pressure, a recommendation of Flournoy and Blinken's CNAS think tank. When the Trump administration launched airstrikes on Syria based on mere accusations of a chemical attack, Tony Blinken praised the bombing, claiming Assad had used the weapon of mass destruction, sarin. Yet there was no evidence for this claim. Something then even Secretary of Defense James Mattis admitted. I cannot tell you that we had evidence, even though we certainly had a lot of media and social media indicators that either chlorine or sarin were used. Well, jihadist mercenaries armed with U.S.-supplied weapons took over large swaths of Syria. Tony Blinken played a central role in the coup d'etat in Ukraine that saw a pro-Russia government overthrown in a U.S.-orchestrated color revolution with neo-fascist elements agitating on the ground. At the time, he was ambivalent about sending lethal weapons to Ukraine, instead opting for economic pressure. We're working, as I said, to make sure that there is a cost exacted of Russia and, indeed, that it feels the pressure. That's what we're working at. And when it comes to military assistance, we're looking at it. The facts are these. Uh, even if assistance were to go to Ukraine, that is very unlikely to change Russia's calculus or prevent an invasion. Since then, fascist militias have been incorporated into Ukraine's armed forces, and Tony Blinken urged Trump to send them deadly weapons, something Obama has declined to do.
1: So this guy supported the Iraq War. He supported George H.W. Bush's invasion of Panama, which is actually held up as a great example of how he has very little concern for international law. Um, And then listen to this. In 2017, after leaving the Obama administration, Blinken co-founded a consulting firm with Michelle Flournoy, who's, by the way, a leading candidate for uh, Secretary of Defense. And it's called West Exec Advisors. It refuses to disclose its clients, but has said that some are in the defense industry. So this person who will be making foreign policy decisions was getting paid or is getting paid by the military industrial complex i saw uh, an article that the daily beast released yesterday and i'm not kidding about this they the title was progressives haven't found a reason to complain about biden's picks it was something to that effect in fact here i'll pull it up for you guys now as i'm talking So far, progressives are pleased with Biden's cabinet picks. Um, Carl Bezier is, is tracking how progressives are doing and it, trying to do it like quantitatively and objectively, empirically. And as of right now, the recording of this segment, we're 0 for 6 in terms of cabinet appointments. 0 for 6. So nobody on any of the lists that progressives want in the administration, nobody has made it in the administration, even though six positions have been picked. The only upside of this guy is um, he's a big believer in international agreements. So namely, he supported the Iran deal. Very positive. Happy that's the case. He supported the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, but listen, he was also an advocate of TPP. That's not good. That's not an international trade agreement I can get behind. Um, but that's the only upside is that he believes more in international cooperation than Trump and his team did, or they're kind of like belligerent isolationists, not in the sense that they'll stop war. That would be non-intervention. They'll keep the wars going, but they don't believe in international cooperation with the United Nations or anybody. Um, so, you know, to the extent that Blinken is a step up from Trump, barely, honestly, it really barely is because you replace the neoconservative war with the liberal humanist intervention war mongers. So these guys like to intervene on, you know, with the guise of human rights, like, oh, we have to protect human rights. And he's for all these wars you just saw. I don't need to run through it again. You saw so, terrible terrible choice, terrible choice. Just terrible. So how's that whole you know pushing pushing Biden the left thing going? If only there were people that warned you about not being able to do that. Okay. next. next, 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 next next. So this is a perfect example of how disconnected, out-of-touch, insular, and ridiculous the media and the elite in DC are. This is from Aaron Maté. He says, the Washington Post just published an article called Washington's Aristocracy Hopes a Biden Presidency Will Make Schmoozing Great Again. They quickly changed it to Washington's Establishment. Someone must have worried how the plebs might react. The article reads exactly like you think it would based off of the titles. So the author lists a bunch of like, you know, elitist gatherings in D.C. where you had the media class and the political class rub elbows and drink cocktails together and chat away and gossip, all these different events where there was this unholy alliance. They even, they even uh, mentioned the, um, what's it called again? How am I blanking on this thing? The thing where, you know, the media literally has an event with the president. The president does his stand-up comedy routine, and, you know, the, uh, they also bring in usually a professional comedian, and they do it. The White House Correspondents Dinner. There you go. That's what it's called. Um, so they bring that up, but they bring up other more, you know, private dinners and gatherings, if you will. And it's like, it's a, it's a, a celebration of all the worst parts of Washington, D.C. The swamp, the corruption, you know, lobbyists getting together, moneyed interests getting together with people who have power influencing the people who make public policy, influencing them in all the worst possible ways. The article's like, hey, can't wait to bring that back. Which, by the way, is making Trump look good. The idea that, like, under Trump, this stuff wasn't happening. Now they're hoping that under Biden they can bring that back. Oh, my God. How did you manage to make Donald Trump look like a positive figure? Now, just so everybody understands, this is not, like, one of the most frustrating parts of this is. That's not even true. The idea that, like, oh... Under Trump, there is no schmoozing and lobbyists getting their way and elites working together. Of course there are! Donald Trump has kept the status quo going behind the scenes like any other president. You know, his foreign policy is run by neocons. His economic policy is run by Wall Street goons. Yeah, it's business as usual. It's the status quo. It's like any other Republican administration behind the scenes. But these people don't like that Trump doesn't have the veneer of seriousness and respectability. He doesn't come across like a polite person with decorum. And so, yeah, maybe on that alone, you had some of these elite gatherings sort of fall apart, White House Correspondents Dinner, um, among others. And so they're hoping, imagine begging for Joe Biden to be the worst version of Joe Biden, which is, business as usual, status quo, ultimate insider Joe Biden. That's what they're doing here. Now, by the way, never seen a better example of like the difference between new media and old media. I mean, this is like all of the reasons why you hate mainstream media. It's just, this is it right here. This is one example that's just perfect. Because this doesn't represent you. This doesn't represent regular people. No regular person is sitting around going, you know, I really wish that Joe Biden would make schmoozing great again. They use the word aristocracy, Washington's aristocracy, and then they change it to Washington's establishment as if that's that much better. No, these are the people who we have pitchforks for and guillotines for. These are the people who we all despise on the right and the left average joe people on the right average joe people on the left average joes and Janes all over the country look at this and they're like oh i hate dc i hate the moneyed interests who corrupt the government and rig the rules in their favor and against average people here we are so credit to uh aaron mate for cashing this i love that they it said aristocracy and they were like oh my god This looks ridiculous. We can't say there's an aristocracy in America because we're supposed to pretend to believe in democracy. Change it to establishment. That sounds just as bad. Washington's establishment. The Washington Post just published an article called Washington's establishment hopes a Biden presidency will make schmoozing great again. I hope he does anything but that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Don't do more war. Don't do more tax cuts for the rich. Don't do more deregulation. Don't do more schmoozing among elites. Never do that. Ever. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg is in the news. Mark Zuckerberg is in the news for making a controversial decision. Social media companies are continuing to crack down on content and really get more and more involved as as a curator or a middleman between you and what you see, as opposed to what they used to be, which is just you know sort of a hands-off, bathroom-wall-type platform where anything goes. And it's not on me. To, it's not my job. I don't look through it. I don't pick and choose what you should or shouldn't see. I'm just, I'm just not involved in that sense. So look at this. Mark Zuckerberg flipped a secret switch to favor credible news outlets on Facebook after the election, according to the New York Times. So There's a lot of stuff to say about this. First of all, let's just talk about the idea of misinformation and disinformation and propaganda. Is that a real problem? The word yes isn't strong enough to portray just how much of a problem it is. It's such a problem that all of this election misinformation that's out there is moving large numbers of people to absolutely delusional beliefs that are just as silly as, like, flat earth. You did have, the original number was, I think, 40% of Republicans were not sure Biden won. This was, like, on the day it was called or within the first two or three days, right? About 40% of Republicans were like, I don't don't know. But 60% were like, yeah, Biden won. What are you going to do? The more Trump has been out there denying it, downplaying it, calling it fraudulent, calling it rigged, and some conservative media outlets are feeding into that, that, they've made that number more and more and more. Now I think it's an overwhelming majority of the Republican Party. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I saw some headlines that it's like the overwhelming majority of Republicans are like, no, I don't, Biden actually didn't win. Okay, so, but the details, the details are the things that drive me crazy because, like, guys, if you're, if you're going to make a case when it comes to something like this, you have to prove it. You have to prove it in a court of law. There's been over 30 election lawsuits brought by Trump and his people. Either every single one has failed or every single one but one has failed, and that was inconsequential anyway. You lost. You lost comfortably. You really did. You lost. So, but the misinformation is so bad that that stuff is the stuff that usually – makes a splash, and gets ahead, and gets the eyeballs, and gets the clicks. You know, it's oftentimes Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire and, and uh, Dan Bongino are like number one on Facebook. And listen, is that insane? Yes, it's insane. Those people are wrong about almost everything. About almost everything. Putting aside, you know, my political opinions or, or anything. No, I'm just saying objectively, they say things that are untrue nonstop. Okay, so this is a huge problem. Now, But well, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Well, what Mark Zuckerberg decided to do is they somehow created an algorithm or whatever you want to call it that prioritizes certain things above other things. So they, now they're trying to prioritize more credible news on Facebook. Well, guess what? That means they're redirecting people right back to the authoritative sources. Who are the authoritative sources? Take a guess. It's CNN, it's MSNBC, it's Fox News. It would be like the nightly news people, CBS, ABC, outlets like that. The, the giant corporations. Now, here's the problem, Mark. They get stuff wrong all the time, all the time. Now, are they as bad as you know, Newsmax and One American News Network? No, I'll grant you that. Still, for example helped push lies and propaganda that led us into illegal wars. They pushed Russiagate relentlessly and were wrong. They were wrong time after time. They would regularly run with stories that there was no evidence to support what they were saying. There's a case that more harm is done as a result of mainstream media propaganda than any of these fringe outlets where, admittedly, they say things that are more insane. You can say things that are more insane and still have less of a negative impact on the world than, like, what mainstream media did with the Iraq War. So, who's going to watch the Watchmen? They've decided, they've decreed, these are the serious outlets. Yeah, but what about when they get stuff wrong? Jake Tapper on CNN, this was a very big thing that happened months ago. He did a fact check of Medicare for All, where virtually everything he said in the fact check was incorrect. It was incorrect, and all of the studies showed that he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. That, you know, Medicare for all saves $5 trillion over a decade, and everybody's covered, and you have better health outcomes. I happen to know a lot about this topic, and I've read all the relevant stuff on it, and Jay Tapper went out there and just flat out, he either lied, or he just was honestly incorrect, but he did a fact check on it. That was CNN. By the way, the video was like 90, 95% disliked. Did they, you know, was there ever any uh, repercussions for that? Was there ever any repercussions for getting Russiagate dead wrong or pushing us into wars? They were were just dead wrong. Mainstream media was just dead wrong about what happened in Syria. Now we've had multiple Syrian whistleblowers that were like, yeah, what they were saying, that Assad, no people didn't happen. Didn't happen. So they get to say whatever they want. They could be dead wrong. And they get away with it. Because you have to determine, oh, I think these are the, the outlets that tell the truth, and I think these ones aren't, but oftentimes that's incorrect. So, guys, you cannot have a situation where you set up a ministry of truth because then the old philosophical question pops up, who's going to watch the Watchmen? Who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? Why should I believe these people? Why should I believe them when they have a track record of being wrong about stuff? Now, again, I'm, is this me saying that Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino should, leave, should lead on Facebook? And, you know, are, uh, are right about stuff? No, of course not. Of course not. But what I am saying is, don't set up a ministry of truth. Don't pretend like you know what's legitimate and what's not legitimate, because you don't, because you don't. And then, by the way, what are the other consequences of this? Bye-bye independent left outlets. The same mechanisms that screw the far right screw the so-called far left just so everybody understands, and we've seen this on YouTube now for an extended period of time, we've talked about it nonstop on this show, that the way the algorithm works, there's, there's tiers of how much different outlets get promoted. Now, if you're viewed as an authoritative source, your stuff gets recommended all over the place, all over the place. If you're not viewed as an authoritative source, if you're viewed as, say, borderline content, that's their words, not mine, that's their words, well then, maybe we don't show your stuff to new people. Maybe we try to not recommend it. Maybe the algorithm kinda of screws you a little bit. That's, what, that's what's happening with this show. If you'll notice, and a lot of people have messaged me and told me this, if you're somebody who watches Secular Talk regularly, yes, you will get recommended videos because you're already in the sphere of the show. But if you're, sometimes if you put on autoplay, it'll start redirecting you back to CNN videos, MSNBC videos. If you're somebody who has never watched Secular Talk, you used to get recommended Secular Talk videos. Anytime you're watching news and politics stuff, now you never get recommended Secular Talk videos. So it's hard to spread to new people. But even if you're in the sphere, you'll get recommended Secular Talk stuff. But oftentimes, if you let autoplay go, it'll always go back to a mainstream media outlet. This is how they screw us. And it can get worse and worse and worse, man. It really can. And now Facebook is trying to do a similar thing. Do I feel bad for Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro? No, because I think they do a shitty job. But as a matter of principle, Facebook should not prioritize authoritative sources when the authoritative sources are wrong all the time as well, and in some ways in even worse ways that have more deleterious consequences associated with it. So careful what you wish for, man. Careful what you wish for. Why would you want... Everybody agrees. Mark Zuckerberg is a giant doofus. Everybody agrees about Jack... But now you want to give them more power to censor and filter and determine what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? And the answer is yes, this is what people want. As if Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires are an an overlord class that should determine what you see and what you don't see. That's not what I want, man. That's not what I want. Got to take a hands-off approach. And listen, does that mean sometimes you'll have misinformation spread? Yes. But that's a human problem. Misinformation is going to spread regardless. Either you could have misinformation spread while we also have freedom, or you could have misinformation spread where you have a ministry of truth and they shove down your throat certain propaganda outlets and screw other independent outlets. I'll, I'll lean on the side of freedom because I know how this movie ends the second you start curating and filtering and going through this stuff with a fine-tooth comb. And one of the first to be screwed is the left. You might think, oh, it's just the right. It's okay. No, they always start censorship with the easy cases like Alex Jones, for example, because he's so, so bad that it's like, well, obviously this guy's crazy. But as soon as you establish that precedent, it's a wrap. You already agreed to your own demise. So they're going to keep inching more and more in this direction. They're going to keep prioritizing authoritative sources. Look at it like this. Maybe this will help people understand it better. Facebook and big social media outlets are embedded with the U.S. government. Now, they are going to prioritize the outlets that the U.S. government is comfortable with. So it's almost like we have state media. That's what this is. You know how everybody looks at, oh, my God, it's so stupid, the, the you know, North Korean state TV and how sycophantic they are to power there? Then you're also begging social media outlets to do that here that's what you want if you're for this yeah let's have the authoritative sources cnn msnbc fox news that represent the establishment represent powerful interests in the us shove that stuff down our throat so get rid of the freedom element completely and feed me state propaganda government us government approved propaganda that's, that's what you want. You want the Fox News represents the Republican Party. MSNBC represents the Democratic Party. CNN and the Nightly News represents both parties. But they all represent the establishment in the United States. And they strictly define the parameters of discourse that's allowed. They regulate the Overton window. So you want social media to become state media, which is authoritarian. That's what it is. That's a textbook definition of it. Careful what you wish for. This is not going to end well. Okay, next.
0: All right, Charles Coke.
5: Charles Coke,
1: here we go. Billionaire Charles Coke spoke to Axios and, um, This clip is so revealing for a number of reasons. He's an oligarch. He's a billionaire oligarch. And let's see what he has to say about the people tempted to buy, the politicians that he attempted to corrupt.
4: When did you realize that you screwed up some of the Politicians that we had helped uh, get elected, uh, I would see them on TV, and and they would be talking about policies that were antithetical uh, against immigration, against criminal justice reform, against a, a, a more peaceful foreign policy. I was horrified. I mean, uh, you you had because wondered, cause we, had, we had vetted them. We had vetted them all, and they all seemed aligned on, on our major issues and on empowering people. And, and then once they got elected, I didn't expect them to, to fully agree with us on everything, but to be cha- at least be champions on some of the major ones we were working on and that they said they were, and then do the opposite.
0: And was it more that it was giving the principles
4: a bad name, or you just weren't getting results? No, we, we, we couldn't get results, and and we were, the whole purpose of getting into politics were find people who would help move us toward a society of equal rights and mutual benefit where people could realize their potential. And it turned out politicians were, were politicians. doing the opposite of it.
1: All right, let me run that back one more time. I want to hear that one more time.
4: When did you realize that you screwed up some of the politicians that we had helped uh, get elected uh, I would see them on TV and and they would be talking about policies that were antithetical uh, against immigration, against criminal justice reform, against uh, a, a more peaceful foreign policy. I was horrified I mean uh, you, you I mean, because, because, because you we invented we? We them. We had vetted them all, and they all seemed aligned on, on, on our major issues and on empowering people. And, and then once they got elected, I didn't expect them to, to fully agree with us on everything, but to be cha- at least be champions on some of the major ones we were working on and that they said they were, and then do the opposite.
0: And was it more that it was giving
4: the principles a bad name, or you just weren't getting results? No, we, we, we couldn't get results, and and we were, well, the whole purpose of getting into politics was to find people who would help move us toward a society of equal rights and mutual benefit where people could realize their potential. And It turned out politicians were, we're politicians. doing the opposite of it.
1: The first point I want to make is that he's incredibly entitled because his assumption is, I bought these politicians. They have to do exactly what I want them to do. And when they don't, I get offended by that. And I'm going to run to the media to point it out and say, you believe these guys? I gave them all this money, and they're not even doing everything I want them to do. The entitlement. Because the question is, hey, why should you have any role in this? Because you do have more influence over these people than the voters, than the constituents, than the American people. Our government is supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. And you're like, forget the representative democracy part. I bought them. So are they in in line with my philosophy or no? That's what matters to me. You're incredibly entitled. Honestly, I think the best way to describe how he views himself and what his role is, is that he's an American Ayatollah. He's an American Ayatollah. Because over 90% of the time in these congressional races, the candidates that win raise the most money. So this guy has the ability to make or break you. He could cut you a few checks, and that's it. He makes your political career. He makes it so that you win your seat. Why should anybody have that kind of power? Because I think that fundamentally destroys the principle of one person, one vote, and equal representation. Because he obviously, him, Sheldon Adelson, these people obviously have way more influence than a random grandmother in Cleveland. And that shouldn't be the case. You should represent the random grandmother in Cleveland just as much as you represent this guy. And actually more so the random grandmother in Cleveland because more people agree with what she's in favor of. These guys have a very particular viewpoint ideology that they're pushing. So he's incredibly entitled. That's the first point. Second point is he's he's covering his own ass here quite a bit. What I mean by that is he doesn't bring up the areas where they do agree with him and where they have worked on his behalf and where he's corrupt. So he really wants – he buys all these politicians. What's the most important thing for him? Cut my taxes and deregulate. And oftentimes he wants uh, you know, subsidies for his companies, and he's gotten billions of dollars worth of subsidies for his companies. But outside of that, he pretends like he's, oh, I'm big on the free market, so I want lower taxes and deregulation. I would guess virtually all the people who he's given money to have given him lower taxes and deregulated. They've all voted in that way. I'm sure they all voted for that 2017 Republican tax cut bill. I'm sure he supported the 2017 Republican tax cut bill. So he's overselling how his hands are clean. And he's not telling you that that's the most important part, and that's the corruption. The corruption is, I'm a billionaire. I want to keep more of my money. I want to deregulate and get the government off my ass. So let me buy these politicians, and they'll do exactly that for me. Okay, so he's hiding that part. But then this is the interesting part to me, and this is what he was flabbergasted by. He apparently is for more immigration. He's for criminal justice reform, and he's for a less hawkish foreign policy. And so he's like, well, hold on now. I bought these politicians. They did the tax cuts for me and the deregulation, but they didn't do the other things I want. These Republican politicians, I want, you know, more immigration. I want criminal justice reform. I want peaceful foreign policy. I supported these people, and then on those issues, they kind of turn their back on me. You want to know why, Charles? Also because of corruption. There's more money on the other side of those issues for them right now. So, for example, you want to know why the Republican Party is not in favor of stopping wars? They take more money from the military-industrial complex than they take from you. So they're going to represent those interests. Raytheon, Boeing, Halliburton, Honeywell, the list goes on and on of all these defense contractors. That's why Charles Koch, you gave them a certain amount of money. I'm sure it's a lot. But when you add up all the money that they've taken from the various defense contractors and the individuals associated with the so-called defense companies, that's more money. So they're going to represent them. They're going to represent them when it comes to um, immigration. By the way, why, why does Charles Koch want more immigration? or looser immigration laws. I'll let you guess. There's a famous Bernie quote on this. He says, open borders is a Koch brothers proposal. Why? Because he can bring in what he views as cheap labor to undercut American wages. That's why he wants, not like, you know, he's, he cares so deeply for humanitarian reasons. No, he, are, are you kidding me? What a joke. Of course not. So, but what's interesting is, so he brings up criminal justice reform. They did do that. They did the first step act, which was a step in the right direction. I guess he wants them to go further to his credit. He wants them to like legalize marijuana, I guess, or at least decriminalize it, which I agree with him on. But my dude, this is not how the system should work. It shouldn't be that you're a whiny billionaire. You cut a check and then you're like, why didn't you do everything I wanted? I mean, they did the big ticket ones, cut your taxes and deregulated. And that's corrupt. But he's crying for more corruption. No, I want them to come to the conclusion that we need to legalize tax and regulate marijuana, because the American people want to legalize tax and regulate marijuana. It's over a 60% issue these days. That's why I want them to do it. I want them to do it because some billionaire cut them a check. Because then you, you know, open up the door to billionaires going to cut them checks in the other direction as well. They could represent them. I trust the will of the American people, and I want that implemented more than I want the will of a random. American Ayatollah billionaire. So he's incredibly entitled, and he seems shocked that, uh, you know, on certain issues they listen to him, and they do his bidding, and on other issues they don't. But it, there's a part that you didn't see in this clip, which was earlier on, where he says, I was, we messed up. I messed up because I was too partisan in how I approached this. Ah, notice what he's saying there. I've been donating for decades now to just Republicans really, I should donate to Democrats too. That should terrify you. You want to know why? Because when he gives money to Democrats, not only is he going to want his position reflected on immigration, his position reflected on criminal justice and less war, he's going to want the tax cuts and the deregulation from them as well. So he will move the Democratic Party more towards that position if he cuts enough checks and if if it's for enough money. Isn't it gross that this is how the system works? We shouldn't accept this. We shouldn't accept this. This should be outrageous. But I love how it's just casually discussed as if it's like, eh, it is what it is. Okay. We shall move on, bitch. Move on, bitch. Move on, bitch. Let me pull up a Jamal Bowman... Jamal Bowman picture, because I need this. He had quite a moment that I'll share with you. Okay, here we go. New Congressman Jamal Bowman went on CNN to discuss Rahm Emanuel potentially being in the Biden administration, and something interesting happened.
5: So far, uh, do you see anyone that's progressive enough for you? Well, first, let me say uh, thank
4: you so much for having me. When I hear names like Rahm Emanuel uh, being floated as part of Biden's cabinet, considering the fact that he covered up the murder of
0: Laquan McDonald uh, in Chicago, considering the fact that he closed over 50 elementary schools and 30 mental health institutions, uh, it's incredibly alarming and
5: We lost the rec there. Sorry about that. We'll try to bring him back at some
1: other point. By the way, I have no idea if, like, they came back from the break and he was there again and they continued the conversation. I, I don't know if that happened. I have no idea if that happened. If that didn't happen, like, if they didn't go to break, come back, and then they got the connection back, isn't like the default assumption that they actually cut him off because he was touching a topic that they didn't want him to touch. I mean, a lot of this confuses me because presumably they bought him on to talk about Rahm Emanuel, and they knew going into it he was going to talk about Rahm Emanuel. They also know he's a left congressperson, so he's going to say what any left congressperson would say about Rahm Emanuel and be like, this guy's terrible. But you bring him on, he starts saying that, and then you cut him off, and then you don't go back to him when you come back from break? Listen, I don't know. I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. You guys are going to have to tell me. You know, I don't know how we'll find out at this point, but I don't think they put this segment up. This is why we have you know, just a Twitter, Twitter video version of this. Um, I don't know, but I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys. I'll ask you guys. Do you think they cut him off because he was making a point that they didn't want him to make, and they want to protect Rahm Emanuel? Rahm Emanuel is the most corporate of the corporate Democrats. He's the biggest hack among the corporate Democrats. He thinks he's some sort of electoral genius. He's not. You know, Jamal Bowman was laying out some of his record there and really ripping him apart accurately. Um, Did they actually cut him off because of his criticisms of Rahm Emanuel? Again, if they came back from break and they didn't bring Jamal back, then isn't that, like, very likely? Isn't that really likely? I don't know, man. Again, I'll, I'll maintain an agnostic take on this. You know, I guess somebody could ask Jamal, hey, were you having internet problems? Because presumably he'll know. They'll be like, no, my internet was fine when they cut it off. If his internet was fine when they cut it off, do I need to pound the gavel? Do I need to pound the gavel? Are there certain criticisms of Rob Manual that you're not allowed to make? You're not allowed to point out what he did with uh, Laquan McDonald? You're not allowed to do that? Or is it the school closings you're not allowed to point out? Well, I don't. This is actually one of the rare instances where I think the progressive pressure is gonna work. I think it's gonna work. Um, because it was, it was all of the progressives, which by the way, it shows you that there's power in numbers and there's power in, in relentless direct messaging where all of the progressives in unison were like, hell no on Rahm Emanuel. So we might actually get him axed, but, but here's the downside though. It could, have been, it could have been a giant head fake from Team Biden where it's like, let's talk about the worst possible person and then we'll say, okay, you got us. We're not going to pick Rahm Emanuel. But then whoever the person is now that they do pick looks good in comparison, even though on their own merits, they'll also be terrible. So it could have been a giant head fake. It's like saying, oh, we'll pick Genghis Khan for Secretary of Defense. And then when they don't, it's like, okay, we didn't pick Genghis Khan. You guys are right. That goes too far. We picked Dick Cheney. And people be like, well, well at least it wasn't Genghis Khan. No, 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 no. you got to evaluate on the merits of who they actually picked. And so if it's Dick Cheney, <laughs> then it's like, well, that's abysmal. He should be rotting in a prison cell at the Hague. So, I don't know what happened with Jamal Bowman here. I hope they didn't cut him off because his criticisms were too on point of Rahm Emanuel. Um, But you never really know. It really was a weird thing, wasn't it? It cut off at a weird time, and then it seems like they didn't go back to him after the break. I don't know. We should probably get Jamal Bowman's opinion on it and see what he thinks happened. All right, let's go to Fox. I got more specifics on how the people have turned on them. I never thought I'd see the day where this happens, but it's happening. Fox News is now losing the right. Fox News favorability has tumbled among Republicans since Election Day. From late December 2019 through November 2nd, 67% of Republicans viewed Fox News favorably. In polling, November 9th to 16th, Network's average favorability rating among GOP respondents dropped to 54%. 67% to 54%. That's a sizable drop. It's only a slight majority of Republicans that like Fox News. And... Listen, is it possible that that's sort of like both ends of the Republican spectrum, too? Yes. So in other words, you could have some people who are realistic, who hated the fact that Fox News entertained conspiracy theories this long about the election, where they're pretending like it's still an open question as to whether or not Biden's going to win. So there could be more reality-based people who are like, this is silly. We know Biden won. But I do think most of the people who are turning on Fox are mad because now they are acknowledging reality. Guys, this coincides with Tucker one night was like, okay, Biden's going to win. And then Laura Ingram the other night was like, yeah, Biden's going to win. And, you know, I covered the story. I went through some of the comments. The comments were like, you're a sellout, you're a turncoat, Um, you know, we, we lost Laura it's people who were really convinced, like, no, 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 this thing isn't over, and there's still more court cases, and Trump says he's going to fight on, and I think that Trump is going to be the one who, who gets a second term. That's what's going to happen. So, listen, again, the only takeaway here is you made your bed, and now you got to sleep in it. You created this monster, and now the monster is starting to eat you, and you don't know how to handle it. I mean, this is what happens when, for years and years and years, they fed into the paranoia of the far right. And there wasn't a single partisan hack argument they weren't willing to make to say Democrats evil and bad, Republicans brilliant and good. You know? And now the chickens are coming home to roost where, you know, Biden beats Trump and it's like they. People are now going into emotional protection mode. Some of the hardcore base people, it's emotional protection mode. They can't fathom that the person who they love so much, Trump, has been rejected. And so it's got to be some sort of, you know, nefarious conspiracy and plot. The new theory, by the way, I love this. The new theory from the likes of Sidney Powell, who's an insane person, is that so those voting booths, the the Dominion uh, voting booths, Well, some of the parts from Dominion are actually from some communist places like Cuba and Venezuela and China. And so those parts that are in the voting machines, they honestly believe it's an international conspiracy of leftists and communists and authoritarian governments to pick Biden. Because, you know, Venezuela and and Maduro are very pro-Joe Biden like to believe these things it defies all reason and it defies knowledge about the world like we know that the democrats are just as hawkish when it comes to Venezuela and so there's no like the idea that Maduro would rig voting machines or something and hand it over to Biden are are you insane are you insane so what we're seeing now, this is, this is Russiagate of the right, where, you know, Democrats come up with all these insane, ridiculous conspiracy theories about how Trump's a Manchurian candidate, and he's serving Vladimir Putin in Russia. And now you have, and actually, it, you got to give Fox at least the respect of acknowledging, calling the race for Biden at the same time the other networks called it, but now even the opinion hosts are like, okay, it's over. But the base is not having it, and that's why they're leaving. That's why they're leaving. I mean, over a, over a 10% drop in favorability among Republicans. Now, where are those people going, by the way? They're going to One America News Network, and they're going to Newsmax. And, and um, somebody sent me an interview with the owner of Newsmax the other day, and the guy basically admits, like, yeah, we're just doing the fraud thing for rating. He's like, yeah, a lot of people are watching now. More people are watching now than ever before, and so we're going to feed them what they want, which is this idea that it's a fraudulent election, it's a rigged election. And he knows it's not true, but he's like, yeah, we're just going to do that because now there's a hole in the market. When somebody wants to create an outlet to the right of Fox News, they want an outlet that's more sycophantic, more authoritarian to Trump, and more delusional. When somebody wants to create an outlet that's to the left of MSNBC, they want people who are more focused on policy substance and hold the Democrats accountable just like they hold the Republicans accountable. Look at that difference. It's almost like that authoritarianism is inherent in the far right, whereas that's not the case for the left, because you want people who are more principled, who are more focused on policy, who are critical of everybody. It's like they want more independent-minded people if you're going to go to the left of MSNBC. You know, the right of Fox News, that's the last thing they want. They want everybody to be in lockstep with every claim about a fraudulent election, a rigged election, and they want nothing but pro-Trump nonsense. Well, even Fox News can't deliver on that now, and so some of the base is fleeing. I'll say it again. You made your bed, now you got to sleep in it. Okay. Alright, I still have, how many more I got for you before before we're done, and it's Thanksgiving, bitch, I got three more for you. No, wrong, I got two more for you. So Zed Jelani tweeted something uh, the other night, and I thought this was an interesting question. He said, if you were a lame duck president with two months to go right now, what would you do? And so I responded, legalize weed, pardon all nonviolent drug offenders, and bring home every single U.S. soldier from the Middle East. But I would have done this on day one anyway. I wouldn't have waited for the lame duck. Um, Many of you responded and said, well, what about Snowden and Assange? Yeah, I would have pardoned them as well on day one. (laughs) Like all these things, I really would never have waited to the lame duck. These are things I would have done instantly when I got in office. So anyway, this is what I said. And um, the Libertarian Party responded and said, same. The Libertarian Party responded and said, same. I find that really interesting. I mean, listen, when you go back and read the things I laid out there, It's not weird. It's not crazy. It actually is right in line with stuff that they would do. But it's funny because it didn't even occur to me as I was typing these things out that, yes, these are also libertarian priorities. And I think this speaks to, again, something that's not enough credit is given to this idea, to this notion, to this philosophical approach and how to get stuff done. But there does need to be an alliance on certain issues between progressives and between libertarians. Because there's enough area of overlap where you're going to get stuff accomplished if you work together. And honestly, the real problem is that there's not enough principled progressives or leftists in Congress. And there's not enough principled libertarians in Congress. You just have like progressive-ish people and libertarian-ish people. And by the way, even given that set of facts. Oftentimes, you have somebody like um Ro Khanna or Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, they'll get together with like Rand, well, Rand Paul's in the Senate, so not Rand Paul, but like Matt Gates, Justin Amash, who's now an independent, and they'll get together and be like, hey, let's try to stop wars. And then you have the other sort of unholy alliance of the corporatists and the hawks, where it'll be like, you know. Liz Cheney, for example, and many of the Democrats will get together and be like, yeah, no, let's not stop the wars. Let's keep the wars going. And let's say that it's somehow irresponsible to bring the troops home from Afghanistan, even though they've been there 19 years. So in order to notch political victories, and I'm talking more specifically now about if you're a politician and you're in Washington, D.C., in order to notch victories, yes, you actually do need to have friends who otherwise you would totally disagree with. And, um, you know, listen, this is something that to a lot of you guys it might seem like, duh, but I'm telling you, this is actually a controversial opinion these days. Because it's so easy to say, since these people are so wrong on other issues, that overshadows any of the good they might do, and so they should never be worked with. You know? If somebody has a super odious opinions on race, but they want to end war, what do you do? Some people would say, just the fact that they have these terrible odious opinions on race overshadows the good they want to do on war, so don't work with them. Seriously, some people believe that. And obviously that's not not something, you know, I agree with. But I will say there is also the part of me, seeing the Libertarian Party respond to me like that, part of me wanted to say something further to them and be like, but I also want universal health care. And I also want free education, you know, just to sort of rub it in a little bit. I also want a higher minimum wage. Like, yeah, we're going to agree where we agree. But when we disagree, I'm going to fight you. And I'll do it happily. So I guess there's a little bit of a lesson embedded in here, which is you don't have to give in ideological purity to compromise. On the contrary, sometimes it's the most ideologically pure who find compromise because there's an overlap on certain issues. So, again, libertarians and leftists, legalize marijuana, free the nonviolent drug offenders, bring home all the troops. Maybe we get to that place in a different way. They get to that place because they just want government to be so small you can drown it in the bathtub. We get to that place because we think that on social issues you should maximize personal freedom. But however we got there, we're in in the same place. And so, you know, why why not build coalitions and do something that works and actually get stuff accomplished? Because here's what's for damn sure. The people who we're ideologically opposed to on everything, they're a hell of a lot more organized which is why you often get more Wall Street deregulation gets passed. It happened under Trump. Yes, you had Democrats like Joe Manchin, corporate Democrats cross over, vote with the Republicans, do more Wall Street deregulation, financial sector deregulation. So the people who are odious are always organized. Ask yourself why we can't be. And by the way, that also means that sometimes leftists will align more with corporate Democrats and not, it won't just be libertarians that you align with from time to time. There are going to be issues where you agree with corporate Democrats. Corporate Democrats are in favor of gay marriage. So am I. So if the issue is gay marriage, will I work together with them on that? Yes. Yes. Again, the mantra is simple. Work with people when you agree with them, fight them when you disagree with them. You don't have to, you don't have to compromise on your values. You don't have to compromise on your policy beliefs You can be ideologically pure while also compromising. And so anyway, this is just a great example of it here. Does the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian um, Twitter account, whoever runs it, doesn't follow secular talk. They they don't follow me, the show, probably don't know anything about me, right? So, but just based off that tweet, they're like, oh, I like what he says right here. On other issues, they probably like, holy shit, what? But just the fact that we agree on those issues was enough for that kind of a moment. And I do think that more people should have that philosophy, more people should have that approach to politics, especially if you're in positions of power. I think it's, you know, it is sort of a different calculation if you're not talking about really working together with somebody um, to materially improve the world. That's when you need that cooperation more than ever. But, you know, in your personal life, I don't really care what you do. Like, you could take this philosophy and almost apply it at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? Like, your crazy, your crazy uncle hates Joe Biden. And you could be like, he did the Iraq war. I hate him too. So yeah, like you could stretch this principle to kind of some silly places, but I don't care what you do at the Thanksgiving dinner table. You could agree with your uncle where you agree, or you could just say, Hey, fuck you. And you're an idiot. And you watch too much Fox news, whatever you want to do on that front. I'm talking more about when you're in a position of power and you actually can influence the world in one way or another. But anyway, uh, so the libertarian party, at least for a brief amount of time, uh, were secular talk bros or Kyle Kalinsky stands And I find that hilarious. Final story of the day.
4: Final story of the day. Final story of the day. day.
1: Joe Biden and his cronies in the media are beginning to burst the progressive bubble of delusion about his administration. Take a look.
4: Just people on uh, the the Trumpian right complaining, uh, Willie. We heard some complaints about the incoming uh, DNI chairwoman. Uh, Ridiculous complaints. We heard complaints uh, about uh, others who, uh, from um, from people on the far left, attacking uh, others for being deficit hawks. Oh my God! Uh, I've got a feeling, Willie, um, that there are going to be a lot of progressives and yes, a lot of Trumpsters on the other side of the ideological. Uh, 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 spectrum, we're going to be very disappointed that Joe Biden is going to pick mainstream candidates that both Republicans
7: and Democrats in the rational middle, in the sane middle, will support. Yeah, I mean, and he's never signaled anything other than that. Through the course of his campaign, even after he's won in the last couple of weeks, we knew exactly where this was going to go. There was some speculation that maybe Elizabeth Warren would be named Treasury Secretary. The Biden campaign never seriously was considering that. I think that's some of the criticism you've heard, what you're talking about for Treasury Secretary with Janet Yellen. There are, of course, progressives that want him to be more progressive, and maybe he will be once he's in there working with progressives in the Congress. But in terms of the people he's out so far you 're right, they are centrist, they are more conventional, and they spent the entire campaign doing what they called ignoring Twitter. So that meant ignoring some of the extremes as well, and they 've shown that that 's what they 're going to do there. It was couched yesterday by Vice President Biden in his interview with Lester holder saying well look i don 't want to pull Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren out of the Senate. I need them there." so I may not put them into positions like the ones that are being suggested. But, of course, there was going to be criticism from both sides, but the Biden campaign is going to move forward just as advertised.
1: O oh, for 6. 0 oh, for 6, the left is, when it comes to cabinet appointments. O oh, for 6. 0 oh, for 6. And the other day, as he alluded to here, uh, Biden was like, Yeah, let you know, I'm not gonna take anybody out of the Senate. Even though Bernie really wants to be Labor Secretary and he's been campaigning for it, and he has assurances that whoever's picked for his Senate seat will be a lefty. They've given assurances on that front. And even then Biden says, I'm not gonna take anybody out of the Senate. That means Warren, Bernie, no chance for you to get into the administration. And then also, he sort of swatted aside the idea as well of like Congress people, Congress people. So like Ro for example, he's somebody who ideologically is more in alignment with Bernie, but has connections with that corporate Democrat world in good graces with them. So theoretically, Ro could be somewhere in the administration. Biden's out there like, "Mm, I don't know about that. I do not know about that. So, here we are, man. Here we are. We warned you about it, that you had to demand extractions from them. You had to force them. It had to be part of your deal up front, Bernie. You had to sit down with Joe Biden and say, listen, I'm not going to drop out, or when I do drop out, if I do drop out, I'm not going to campaign for you, so my 30% block, who knows if they'll support you unless you meet these demands. Here's my list of demands. And he would have made a deal with you. He wouldn't have given you all that you wanted, but he would have done some of the things. One of those things, you could have said, I want to be labor secretary. If you made that a condition up front, he probably would have had to accept it. But you didn't make that a condition. You dropped out, you gave him every single thing that he wanted, and then he spit in your eye in return. Now, the Joe Scarborough points here, Jesus Christ, he's so smug and obnoxious. Um, He brings up the rational sane middle the ra- look at the the assumption is uh oh, it's always sane and rational here in the middle no because you're talking about the middle in the dc swamp where you're full of corporatist elitists being in the middle of that is nothing to be proud of being in the middle of that is actually kind of pathetic because you're, you know what that means it's he just represents business as usual and the status quo the military industrial complex and wall street goons that's the middle that joe scarborough is referring to and scarborough attacks what he calls the far left for attacking deficit hawks joe are you so stupid that you don't understand what that label entails it doesn't just mean like they want balanced budgets. no it means no more stimulus in the middle of a pandemic and an economic implosion which is effectively a depression That's what a deficit hawk would bring about. Hey, no more spending. No more spending. No more stimulus. Let's prioritize balancing the budget over families in desperate need of aid. That's what that means, Joe. But maybe he does know that. Maybe he does know that and he doesn't care because he's comfortable. He's fine. But he's scoffing at the idea that, you know, the left is against some deficit hawk being put about. Of course, the austerity is incredibly damaging, especially at a time like right now with a pandemic and a depression. The last thing you should ever do is austerity. And it looks like Biden's lining up people who believe in austerity. So Joe Scarborough is happy, but the left is pissed. And he's trying to portray it as like, get crazy far lefties and crazy far righties who are going to go after Joe, but Joe's right about this stuff. No, he's not. Joe is status quo. Joe is business as usual. Joe is going to do the same things that are going to lead to the rise of the next Trump where a new fake populist on the right rises to power because Joe's not swinging for the fences and not being like FDR, not being a social Democrat, and it's also because morons like you cheer this on. Morons like you, you're a moderate Republican. Joe's effectively a moderate Republican. That's why you love him. That's why you support him. They let us down, man. They did not play their hand right. The left got rolled. The sooner you admit that, the sooner we can make adjustments moving forward to actually get victories. Okay. We're done, y'all. Everybody, enjoy your Thanksgiving to the extent that you're doing anything. Most importantly, stay safe. COVID is out of control. You guys need to know that, need to recognize that, and react accordingly. But anyway, I love you all. Have a great holiday, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.